The Fire and the Darkness. The World War II Allied bombing of Dresden, Germany is our topic on the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is a literary critic in England and author of a previous bestseller on World War II about the secret lives of codebreakers. We welcome Sinclair McKay. Uh, thanks for joining us, sir. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Sinclair McKay is on the line from England. His new book is titled The Fire and the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 1945, which was 75 years ago. The bombing was carried out in the closing months of World War II by British and American bombers, starting on February 13th of 1945, three months before the German surrender. This is a, uh, let me ask a question that's often asked about the Hiroshima bombing of Japan. Did this tremendously destructive bombing in Dresden bring about a quicker end to the war? I think it's, I think it's, it's very, very difficult to say that. Uh, the, I think the answer is no, actually. Uh, it, it was clear by February the 13th, 1945, that uh, the, 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 the Nazis were, were finished. Uh, the Allies were pushing in from the west. Stalin's Red Army was pushing in from the east. Having said that, no one in February 13th, 1945, knew that the war was going to end on May the 8th, 1945. There was still the, the extraordinary thing about the Nazi regime was that even though it was clear that they were going to finish, they still could have fought on with real uh, venom and extraordinary kind of vigour, even if they were down to kind of boy soldiers. And so the bombing of Dresden, uh, there were uh, there were so many sort of layers of complexity within. Uh, the, the story of the ferocity of, of that night. I mean, Dresden is a totem now to the horrors of total war. It, it, it stands alongside as a byword, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, actually, doesn't it, in terms, of, mm-hmm. in terms of the war being visited upon civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this was a night in which 25,000 people also, uh, the vast majority of them civilians, uh, were, were, were bombed kind of ferociously, uh, so ferociously that a firestorm rose a mile into the sky. So yes, uh, instantly you're faced with these kind of moral considerations. The idea, part of the idea behind it was that in one decisive blow, Nazi morale might be shattered. Uh, it, it did exactly the opposite, in fact. Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, sort of gleefully inflated the death toll by ten times and circulated the figure around the world that 250,000 people had died hideously that night in Dresden. Hmm. Now, you, you said that night. I, I thought the bombing went on for more than one night or one day. It did, yes. There were, there were three waves. Uh, the, 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 the British RAF came in with the first wave at uh, around 10 o'clock at night on February the 13th. Then, uh, after midnight, there was a second wave of RAF Lancaster bombers, even as their incendiaries had already created uh, a, a, a fire that was already gutting the historic city centre. Then, uh, on, the next, uh, on the next day, uh, on a morning when no one in Dresden even knew that it was morning because the sky was black with ash, uh, 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 American bombers came in uh, to, to, to carry out a daylight bombing. Uh, and many in the, the, those, those survivors in the streets below <laughs> looked at this third attack with particular horror. Uh, you know, the, 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 the extraordinary ferocity of the British raid, followed then by what seemed like uh, the American Air Force pouring fire on open wounds. Hmm. And you, 
it said that there was a firestorm in Dresden. I believe uh, there was a firestorm in Hiroshima from the atomic bombing and maybe in Tokyo. What does that mean? What is a firestorm as opposed to a big fire? Well, uh, it's an interesting question and one that actually scientists are still exploring. Uh, today. A, a firestorm is a very particular quirk of physics, a terrifying quirk of physics, as it turns out. They occur naturally. Uh, there were firestorms, for instance, in Wisconsin uh, in the late 19th century, uh, which were studied by scientists then. They started as, as bushfires and then rise into, into something quite different. It's, it's, it's a giant kind of fire tornado that sucks so much oxygen in that it creates a kind of fire hurricane. And at the center of it is, this, as I say, this fire tornado whirling and whirling with desperate, furious energy. If you are anywhere near it, you would literally be pulled off the ground, up into the air, helplessly, and you would be burning as you did so. Uh, it, it had been seen also in Japan after the great Kobe earthquake of 1923. That created so many fires around uh, the city of Tokyo that, uh, again, a firestorm formed, flames joined with flames, and the, the, the phenomenon of fire tornadoes, these superheated fire tornadoes, was termed in Japan the dragon twist. Now, it was the, 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 the Luftwaffe, the Germans, were fascinated by this phenomenon. Uh, it, their aim from the beginning of the war uh, was to visit artificially created firestorms on, on the cities of their enemies, even though they didn't succeed in London. London, for instance, in the mm -hmm. London Blitz. Uh, it was clear that, that was partly the intent. And then there was the bombing of Coventry in 1940 in the English Midlands, uh, which came close. And again, the, the, the aim was so many incendiaries. The aim was not just to smash buildings to pieces, but to create fire. It's the oldest, most terrible, most atavistic impulse of all. And the RAF, the British RAF, started... Uh, not retaliating, retaliating exactly, but started to see midway through the war that this was a way of waging war that might, as they saw it, bring a swifter end to the conflict. Mm -hmm. And so in 1942, Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris ordered a raid on the German city of Lübeck. Now, Lübeck had no military significance whatsoever. I think there might have been one submarine about 20 miles away. I think that was about it. But it was a historic timber-framed city. It was a beautiful medieval city. Um, and it went up in flames uh, as a result of an RAF raid, and it was used almost as a laboratory. That was followed then by the bombing of Hamburg in 1943, which created a good, terrible firestorm. Germans, meanwhile, were still bombing Britain uh, mm -hmm. uh, with, with, with some ferocity. And then they were sending over the V-1 and the V-2 uh, yeah. missiles and rockets. So you see from all sides, this, this is a, kind of a terrible escalation, a terrible acceleration, but all the way through it, is this kind of key element of fire. Mm. Now, why? it sounds like Dresden, maybe with talking about these other cities that were targeted, was just picked at random. I mean, as you, you said of Lubeck, there, there wasn't much, or was there anything much of military significance in Dresden? Well, actually, well, curiously, there was. Um, this is part of the extraordinary and dark uh, fascination with the story of Dresden, I think. Um, just to describe the city a little to you and its geography, uh, Dresden is very deep in the east of Germany. It's very close to the Polish border. It's very close to the Czech border. It's only about 100 miles away from Prague. And it's deep in the valley of the River Elbe. It seems to exist a kind of step apart from time in a curious way. It's surrounded by these kind of rich, 
haunted kind of for- forests of Saxony and these beautiful kind of rocky plains and rocky mountains. And there's something about the city, and there has been ever since the 18th century, there's a faint fairy tale quality to it, which the Dresdeners themselves have always been very, very aware of. The, the architecture was Baroque and drew influences from all over Europe. The city from the 18th century onwards was drawing the greatest artists, the greatest painters. There was Bernardo Bellotto, there was Caspar David Friedrich, who lived in the city and drew huge inspiration from its slightly kind of otherworldly quality. Then in the 20th century, there were modernists like Otto Dix, who were fantastically kind of vigorous and brilliant. And then on top of that, there were the musicians. The, the streets of Dresden seemed suffused with music. So you had Richard Wagner in the 19th century presiding over the Dresden Opera, Richard Strauss in the 20th century presiding over this fantastic mm. institution. Before the darkness of Nazism, Dresden was, as I say, a kind of fairy tale city at the very heart of Europe, which drew visitors from all across Europe, and indeed America too. The American writer Washington Irving, in the 19th century, lived in Dresden uh, for, for quite a time, actually. He absolutely loved it, and he got embroiled in all sorts of, kind of romantic escapades, too. So, as you see, before, before, uh, before Nazism uh, and, and before the war, you have this, this kind of delightful, baroque fantasia of a city. But by February the 13th, 1945, you have another reality, which is that the city was a busy transport hub for the German military. Uh, they were moving through towards the Eastern Front, which by that stage was only 60 miles away. On top of that, the city's many factories, there were lots of factories near the historic set- city centre, were completely turned over to war work. And they were being, uh, they, the, the war work was being done by a lot of slave labour too. You see, the, the, you know, the, the other side of the story is always there. And we must always remember Dresden's Jewish population too. Before Nazism, up until the 1920s, 1930s, the Jewish population of Dresden had been something like six or 7,000. And the synagogue stood proudly on the river alongside all the other great architectural mm-hmm. treasures of the city. By February the 13th, 1945, there were 198 Jewish people mm-hmm. left in Dresden. So there is this con- consistent duality uh, to the story. And it was a slight... It, was, it did have a legitimacy as a military target because, as I said, because of this transport hub... The railway junctions, the roads, which Stalin had specifically requested the Allies to target, and also because of these factories mm-hmm. too. Now, I say it's not the most significant of all military targets, but it was there. Mm. You're listening to uh, Sinclair McKay joining us on the Historian's uh, Podcast. His uh, book is The Fire and the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 1945, Dresden, Germany, at uh, toward the end of uh, World War II. We'll be back with him in uh, just a moment. Uh, If we can just uh, inject a word about the Historian's Podcast and our fundraising campaign, which lasts all year, so there's maybe no rush, but maybe there is, Uh, you can make a donation to our GoFundMe page. If you uh, go to our a main uh, page, our uh, website, bobcudmore.com. You'll find a link to uh, GoFundMe and our GoFundMe page. Once you get there, they'll explain to you how you can uh, donate online uh, using your credit card. Very simple matter. But a lot of folks would rather uh, send a check in the mail, and we certainly welcome those. Make the check out to Bob Cudmore and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. We're speaking uh, with Sinclair McKay, who joins us uh, from England. He's author of The Fire and the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 
1945. Uh, our home base is in upstate New York, Sinclair, near Schenectady, where Kurt Vonnegut uh, worked after World War II for General Electric. His brother Bernard was a scientist who studied weather and then was a professor at the State University of New York in Albany uh, for some time. So I'm uh, sort of doubly interested in the fact that uh, you s- uh, spend time discussing the experiences of Kurt Vonnegut during the bombing in, in Dresden. Why was he, an, an American, in Dresden when the bombs fell? Wow, it's such a, it's an extraordinary story, which, as, as we know, then inspired one of the great works of American literature of, 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 of uh, the, the, the last kind of the century or so. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut was in Dresden on that night because he was a prisoner of war. He'd been taken prisoner by the Germans around about Christmas, 1944, 1945. And by early 1945, he and his fellow prisoners had been transported to Dresden where they were being used as slave labor uh, in the factories. He was working at one stage in a malt syrup factory. They were making malt syrup for pregnant women. Um, And the the torture of that, when (laughs) his own rations were so incredibly meager, and when his own Nazi guards were so incredibly brutal, incredibly violent, he was being held with his fellow captives in an old abattoir near the edge of the historic city centre. A slaughterhouse, Mm -hmm. in other words. Um, (laughs) uh, This is where he and his fellow captives are being forced to live. Uh, ironically enough, on that night, because the building had con- concrete foundations, he was probably a little safer than a lot of his uh, Nazi captors. But then his experiences on that night and then experiences of the following day when he and his fellow forced laborers were made by the Nazis to dig corpses out from the brick cellars in which they had been killed. Uh, it's kind of incalculably haunting now. It eventually led to Kurt Vonnegut's brilliantly famous 1969 novel Slaughterhouse Five, uh, which is a novel that crosses all sorts of time streams, but always comes back to the vortex of Dresden and the pure horror of what Vonnegut saw on that night and on the days that followed. Mm. You um, also tell the story of of German people, of course. Uh, um, Who was Margot Hiller, an apprentice brewery worker? Yes, uh, I think... I mean, if you go now to Dresden, uh, they've got a, a brilliant archive uh, up on uh, the edge of the city, the Dresden City Archives, where they've done the most fantastic job in collecting uh, hundreds of eyewitness accounts from that night. They've enlisted uh, uh, not only people's memoirs and, and diaries, but also letters, uh, all sorts of different sort of forms of memory. They've got recordings, too. They've asked people to record uh, their, their memories. So we've got some... So we've got accounts from people who were children that night. We've got uh, accounts left behind by people who are older. And I just wanted to try and see as much through the eyes of ordinary Dresden civilians uh, as far as possible, uh, the horrors of that night. Those who are not in the historic bombed city centre itself, but just on the fringes of the city, looking down from its hills, looking down at this kind of uh, unbelievable carnage uh, that was going on. And that also includes the diaries of Victor Klemperer, uh, a professor who was one of the very few Jewish people left in Dresden that night, and who, uh, ironically enough, the bombing, the extraordinarily nightmarish that it was, latterly proved to be his kind of salvation. Um, so, yes, there are all those different, uh, so many different voices, uh, 
and so many different kind of witness accounts. On top of that, though, I, I thought it was terrifically important to, to set the balance, though, because in all the discussion of whether this was a war crime or not, or what kind of level of atrocity this constituted, uh, we could look at the senior command, but we forget about, we slightly forget about the crews of those bomber planes. Uh, we forget about those incredibly brave crew members of the, mm-hmm. the British bombers and the American bombers, too, uh, who were fighting the most extraordinarily terrifying war, uh, flying out deep into the darkness of enemy territory again and again with every likelihood that they themselves were going to be consumed in molten explosions, their planes shot out of the sky. These were young men who had seen so many of their friends being killed so hideously, and they would return to air bases and they would see the empty beds which spoke of the proximity of death, and yet somehow, somehow, they, they, managed, they, they, they did push themselves to fly further missions, and indeed when their tours of duty came to an end, they volunteered for more. They were, they were fighting the, the, the darkness of Nazism. They were, they were absolutely sure that this was the way to stop the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And we must never forget, actually, I was reading so many diaries and memoirs of American airmen and British airmen, and you could think, oh, they must have been very bluff, very kind of hearty. But actually, what you see in accounts is accounts of very intelligent and often mm-hmm. very sensitive young men uh, who reflect deeply, who live through trauma that you know, I, you know, I can't even begin to mm-hmm. imagine, mm-hmm. Uh, still less to even begin to pay, pay tribute to the, the amount that we owe them. Since and, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, in, because Dresden is such a byword for horror, it's important to remember that this touched on the lives of incredibly courageous uh, crew members too. I, I wanted to uh, get into the subject of what happened after the uh, uh, bombing. We're joined by Sinclair McKay, World War II historian, author of The Fire and the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden. Now, the war ended uh, some months later, and the Soviets, the, the Russians, occupied Dresden. Uh, that that made a big difference for the rebuilding of that city, didn't it? It did, yes. Uh, uh, and again, it's one of the, the, the one of the extraordinary fascinations of the story. I think is how, first of all, how do you even begin to think about rebuilding this alien wilderness of molten ash? We're still so the the the, the, uh, the, you know, the bodies, the corpses. Uh, but in the days immediately after the bombing, that sort of civic instinct took hold of ordinary Dresden civilians, not the Nazis. The Nazis put up signs saying. Uh, no looting, as if there was anything left to loot. <laughs> it's just an extraordinary right. thing to do. But the artists were already out in the streets sketching. And as you say, then the Soviets take over. So the people of Dresden are moving from one form of totalitarianism to another overnight. Uh, they're swapping one form of oppression for another form of oppression. Uh, the Russians, uh, there are Russian street signs in the streets very quickly afterwards. Uh, Russian is taught as a second language in Dresden schools very shortly afterwards. It falls within the German Democratic Republic, uh, the old East Germany, behind the wall and behind the Iron Curtain. And the Soviets had their own uh, own views on what had to be rebuilt and when. Now, clearly, the housing had to be rebuilt first, because some 78,000 apartments had been destroyed uh, in the space of that one extraordinary fiery night. Uh, but then there were the, uh, the, the, the cultural jewels of Dresden, too. The Zwinger Palace, which was the great art gallery. Uh, the Soviets decided that would be rebuilt because art was as much for the working classes, they said, as for the middle classes. So that was important. The Opera House, however, remained in ruins until the 1980. And there was the Baroque 18th century uh, church of the Frauenkirche, the Church of Our Lady, 
uh, again, just a blackened stump. Uh, and that remained a blackened stump uh, for very, very many years, until actually quite recently, uh, where it's now been rebuilt in every single detail, uh, even down to the colours mm. of the interior of the dome. It is absolutely hair-raisingly, uncannily beautiful and brilliant. But yes, the, the, the Soviet mark on the city, you still see it, actually, because they, the, the, it's now part of the history of the city. Uh, the, the, the Palace of Culture, uh, so-called, the rebuilt Pragastrasa shopping street, with this, which is a kind of vast concrete canyon. Uh, and it's, it's not without its own interest now, but it's fascinating to see how it was remotely possible for anything to, to come out of those ashes at all. But what you, de- what you do see coming out of those ashes is that determination uh, to, to rebuild. And the, the old Dresden spirit that old artistic spirit coming through again. So once again, it becomes a world centre of opera. Once again, it becomes a world magnet for artists everywhere. Hmm. And one of the the Russians who was there was Vladimir Putin, right? <laughs> Indeed so, yes. There's a fantastic picture of Vladimir Putin there in the mid-1980s. He was a young KGB agent at the time, and he was posted uh, with his wife and I think his one very young child at the time, uh, to Dresden in the mid-1980s. Uh, I, there's a fantastic photograph of him standing just in a sort of street crowd, and he's looking uh, a little chubbier, a little fatter than we're used <laughs> to seeing him. Yeah. Uh, and it's because he became very, very fond of the local beer. Uh, he also, I think he bought his first car in Dresden. He was immensely fond of the city. And he, when, the, when the, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, and when the East German communist uh, government collapsed in on itself, it was... Vladimir Putin, who's outside the headquarters of Dresden's Stasi, the much-feared Stasi uh, secret arm Mm -hmm. of the state, which had been persecuting uh, so many East Germans through the years. And on that day, when the East German government collapsed, uh, there was a crowd of angry Dresden civilians who were marching on on the Stasi HQ uh, to to no doubt try and storm it. Putin stood in front of them. And he single-handedly said, uh, please do not go any further, because if you do, they will shoot you dead. Now, people have said that's, that was Putin defending the Stasi. Actually, it was Putin defending the civilians of Dresden against the Stasi. So, again, you get this. Uh, Dresden is the kind of city that reveals mm. unexpected flashes of, 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 of some well-known people. Mm. When I gather um, that Stalin, in particular, didn't want any American aid in rebuilding uh, Dresden. No, he didn't. And actually, there's a, there's a wonderful museum in Dresden now, which has fantastic uh, Soviet-era propaganda posters. Uh, and they're kind of fascinating now. It's kind of capsules of history themselves. And one of them, very specifically, is about re- refusing martial aid, not taking any money from the Americans, because, as the Soviets put it, uh, it was the Americans who bore the greatest responsibility for the destruction of Dresden. The, as they put it, the American gangsters. Uh, because it then became subsumed into Cold War propaganda. The Soviets were telling the people of Dresden, look what the Americans did to you, look what they could very well do to you again. We must never take any money from these gangsters. As a result of which, it left the, the city could have cash starved for years. On top of that, the Soviets had themselves gone into Dresden after the war and just basically stolen huge quantities of scientific equipment, <laughs> agricultural equipment, <laughs> and spirited it back to Moscow. They'd stolen the art. Uh, so the, the, the hypocrisy about the, the, the Americans is kind of quite breathtaking. But it's an interesting little capsule of history, though. and It, 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 it very much coloured the way that Dresden has viewed the, the history of the bombing afterwards, too. It's only kind of now that history is kind of shifting again. Uh, because apart from anything else, 
the Americans went in for what they termed precision bombing. You know, the, it was the RAF, the British RAF, who sent over 796 bombers with all the incendiaries and started the firestorm that could be seen from 100 miles away. Uh, the American Air Force, by contrast, always flew by daylight and were very specifically aiming for the railway marshalling yards and the factories. They weren't always perfectly accurate. Of course, they weren't. They didn't have the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, the term precision bombing uh, was, had a sort of slightly macabre ring. But they always insisted in ethical terms that they did not go in for the same kind of area bombing. Uh, that Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris did. Uh, uh, you know, those scruples were then forgotten by the time they came to bomb Tokyo in March 1945. You know, that, the, the, the Americans started a firestorm of Tokyo, over Tokyo that night. Nonetheless, in the case of Dresden, uh, they recoiled, at the, the Americans recoiled at the idea that they could have been held responsible for terror bombing, as it was called. Mm. So would you say uh, that the main, I don't know, force on the Allied side uh, calling for the bombing of Dresden was the British? Well, I mean, again, curiously, it's difficult. If you look at the correspondence now between the senior, uh, senior personnel in Bomber Command and the kind of targets they were talking about, be they synthetic oil plants or railway marshalling yards, or, as Arthur Harris had it, you know, targeting some certain cities. Even then, uh, you know, Arthur Harris is uh, synonymous with Dresden now. The, the, the two names are always forever linked. But in one memo, Dresden was number four on a potential list of targets that he had drawn up. There were other cities like Chemnitz and Magdeburg and Leipzig uh, mm-hmm. that he was interested in because of their, their industry. I think by that, you're talking about the end of six years of global conflict, millions upon millions of dead right the way around the world. I think it seems to me in reading all the, all the private papers now that a, a, a certain kind of exhaustion and a certain kind of irrationality had set in. And I think Dresden was part of that irrationality. Uh, the British were driving it. You know, the, the, the fact that Stalin had requested the city to be bombed because it was an important transport hub. But, the, you know, the fact that the Allies were willing to, to accede so readily uh, to this kind of demand mm-hmm. is compelling mm-hmm. kind of in itself that something had slipped its mooring. Some, the, the perfect calculations were kind of no longer there. Something altogether more haphazard had taken its place. There was simply stamping upon the Nazis harder and harder, it seems, just in a desperate, desperate effort to make them stop. It was an American, well, a later American literary critic called Paul Fussell, who was in the U.S. Army uh, at the time. He was, he was there marching through the Ardennes, fighting through the Ardennes, through that difficult winter of, uh, of 1944 and then into 1945. And he said, uh, he remembered at the time just that with a sense of wonder, you know, why won't the Nazis stop? Why won't they stop? Mm. But it was clear that they were defeated, but they still wouldn't surrender. And so, uh, as I say, we're, we're, we're beyond pure rationality, I think, at this stage. But, uh, but you can, in, a, in another curious way, you can understand it, even though it's in no way excuses uh, the hideous death, the hideous death of 25,000 people in one night. Mm. And you've been there. How do they memorialize the bombing, or do they? They do, and they do very movingly, uh, indeed. I've been, there, I've been there a number of times, and I, I hope to be going back a number of times more. Actually, I'll quite happily retire there. It is simply the most beautiful city, and it's been rebuilt in the most sensitive and exquisite way. And the commemorations mirror that, too. Uh, Sinclair McKay, World War II historian, author of The Fire in the Darkness, The Bombing of Dresden, 1945. It's published by St. Martin's Press. This has been The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. (laughs) ¶¶